The war is about a wonderful dad who comes home from Vietnam with PTSD, and it's about a summer when he is trying to take care of his family and his two kids are trying to make sense of what he's been through. And they're having a big feud with some other kids in town. Whose names we'll cover at the beginning of this episode, and people will learn (laughs) that it is impossible for me to know more than two names at any given time. But those two that you do know, you you know the heck out of them, (laughs) to be fair. And I do want to apologize to one of my favorite actresses whose name that I've been saying wrong this entire time, which is... Like for your whole life? My whole life. Whoa. And I'm referring to Christine Baranski. That is her name? Yes. Baranski. I've been calling, as you will hear in this episode, Christine Brzezanski. <laughs> Which is a great name also. <laughs> <laughs> we were joined by Kasai Richardson, who is someone... Uh, years and years ago, I worked in New York at a Trace magazine... And it was a magazine about, quote, transculturalism, which today I think we would associate with a different thing. But this was kind of like a global black fashion and culture magazine. And Kasai and I were both unpaid interns who sat across from each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I didn't know that. Yeah. And he's and he's a he's a writer still um, and also an educator. And when. Uh, we were talking about guests to be on the show. I thought Kasai would be great. And he is the one who suggested the war. And we learn a lot about why Kasai suggested that. I feel like this is um, the most that we have talked about someone's actual dad in discussing a movie so far. The most we have talked directly about movies as a way of processing trauma and emotions and what we have been through. And and we've kind of been talking about that from the beginning in bits and pieces, but it's just very fully um, a theme here. And yeah, I guess love that, that we talked about that. I feel like Kasai like came here re- ready to just dive into the deepest of water, you know, just like, like Hooper on the orca, just like throw me in the water. He went all the way into the the turbulent dad waters and and we all got to go and it really um meant a lot to me to share that with both of you yeah it was he was so extraordinarily generous in a way that I imagine it could be hard uh when coming on and talking about your dad and and as you said this episode is so interesting because this movie is so unique this movie is a very unique very specific series of uh, stories layered on top of each other. And every element of the stories happened to line up with exactly what Kasai's relationship with his father is. And his family, as as we'll talk about, used this kind of to understand each other. The theme that came up so much in this conversation is the search for representation and how much it matters to see some analog for what you're trying to understand about yourself or your family or just the world around you represented in movies and just for movies to have authenticity and to be authentically what they are about. And also this, I think this is going to be our best dad for a while. Like it's going to take a while for a, a movie dad to come along and unseat Kevin Costner's character in this movie. 
Kevin Costner as a dad in this movie is shining. He's wonderful, and we all wish we got the hand of Kevin Costner as a dad in this movie. Despite that, (laughs) we talk about dad messes left and right. I think I would also close by saying that it's um, meaningful that Kevin Costner is such a great dad in this movie, and we discussed this too, like because not because he's perfect, but because he has gone through a lot and inherited a lot of trauma through his experiences and is now such a heroic figure in my eyes because he is working very hard to be a positive influence in his family's life um, and to not pass on, you know, the hurt that he has experienced onto them by inflicting it on them. And like, that's (laughs) the greatest dad heroism that I can imagine. And I think that a lot of people can imagine. So like, I don't know. I just think that if we expand what we think of as heroic, then we can also bring in better role models. All right. Let's talk about the war. Away from you, given he had a choice. All right, I'll tell. I will say, Elvin, what you got to write about? I can't control myself. I expect you to. Because if you're looking for a fight, I'll fight you right now. But I don't believe in fight. I bet you don't. Why does God take everything? Bad enough for a house and all things. Why, why do you have to take my daddy? What did I do so wrong that he didn't have to take my daddy? Stephen Simmons, a dad who comes home to Mississippi from Vietnam, he was fighting in Vietnam, played by Kevin Costner, comes to be with his family. His wife, Lois, is played by Mary Winningham, who isn't in enough things as far as I'm concerned. And his daughter, Lydia, uh, who's played by Lexi Faith Randall, and his son, Stu, who's played by Elijah Wood. It's about his return, his attempt to get back to work and get his life in order. Uh, It's about his kids coming of age as well and applying the lessons that he's learned and taught to them. Particularly as a PTSD-stricken vet, the kids, along with their friends, have an ongoing feud with the Lipinski clan. Lipnicki. Which is (laughs) Lipnicki. That's way different. It's it's Lipnicki like the kid from Jerry Maguire, not Lipinski like the girl who improbably won the 1998 Olympics. Two very 90s names. <laughs> I've been calling that other kid Lipinski this whole time, <laughs> by great. the way. Um, so it's about the uh, Lipnicki clan, 
a gaggle of boys in one one girl uh, who are charitably, I mean, who could just charitably be called poor white trash, who are, um, I mean, that's sort of how they're portrayed. I would call them a 90s reboot of the Yule family uh, from To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Oh, that is that is fantastic. That's the contrast we see. So they're raised by their father, who is the opposite uh, in almost every way of Stephen Simmons. Okay. Kasai, when I asked you to be on the show, you suggested this movie. Why did you suggest this movie? Let me count the ways. <laughs> so I rewatched this yesterday. And thank you both for having me on. And as I'm rewatching it, like all this stuff is coming up and I'm like, damn, this is why this was like a staple in our house growing up. And mm. as that thought crosses my mind and I'm remembering stuff that happened in the movie, my mom calls me just to check in. And I tell her I'm watching it. She's like, oh, I love that movie. It always gets me. And she's like, you want to talk to your dad? And she puts him on the <laughs> phone and I tell him I'm watching the war. And he's like, oh, yeah, I, I just uh, came across that in my collection yesterday. I'm never getting rid of that. Oh, man. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, that movie had so many parallels to our life growing up. Mm-hmm. There was a family like the Yules that uh, when we moved into our neighborhood when I was like 10 uh, that were our friends. And then as they started to like learn that we had this like kind of loving home, stable home and that you know I was going to private school and some other stuff that they might not have had that I don't know rubbed them the wrong way we started you know it was kind of like a, a feud situation and there were fights and there were whole neighborhood you know battles and stuff and uh on top of that my dad you know was a Vietnam vet mm. and you know incredible man like you know I have a great relationship with him now uh, I think about like Kevin Costner, like I was uh, before we started telling Sarah, like this was like classic '90s sentimentality of just like he's like impossibly good, you know. He, he's he's had all these uh, trials and tribulations in life, but you know keeps a stiff upper lip and is so optimistic and hopeful, almost to a fault. Um, that wasn't always my dad. My dad was very alpha, very old school. You know, I've written about this plenty, so it's not like I'm putting family business out there. But he. Uh, you know, he had a kind of rough life. He was born in Pennsylvania, but grew up mostly in Chicago. Uh, my grandfather, his father was uh, a bishop and uh, ran this huge church in uh, in the south side of Chicago. Had Sweet Daddy Grace like come to his uh, services and, and give, give sermons. And uh, my dad was like being groomed to be a youth pastor when he was like eight or nine. And then his mom passed away when he was about 14 or 15. And the story was always that my granddad remarried and that upset my father uh, so much that he ran away. And I always like heard that story and thought it was so dramatic. And it wasn't until my granddad passed away about 10 years ago that I learned that he ran away and it was only like four blocks down the street. And nobody thought to look for him then. But just to fast forward a little bit, like he, I guess, um, ended up going out to Virginia to live on his grandmother's farm because he just wasn't ready to come home. He joined Job Corps and then he was drafted. And he came back from the war and he talked to me about this because like growing up, he was a very tender man. Like he became Mr. Mom when my sister was born when I was about five. I very distinctly remember these these moments of, you know, playing games with him and him having like sing-songy nicknames and things like that. But things kind of like went sour when my half-brother died when I was about 10. Uh, he was murdered, and um, I was too young to understand then. Uh, obviously, the, the things that he was going through, that my dad was going through from his first family that he started right after the war, but like I know now, and then talking to him, like how much that impacted him. And from that point forward, especially like as I became like this bratty teenage drunk, 
um, like spoiled, like prep school kid. It was like a night and day thing with him. And I know now it was just he didn't want me to suffer the same fate that, that my half-brother did. And, you know, he got physical sometimes. It was verbal and emotional stuff. Now, I know that so much of his upbringing, because he would casually tell me stories about being abused by his aunt. She would like lock them in the basement of the restaurant that she ran and things like that. But I think for a long time, uh, <laughs> I guess like before I got sober, especially um, eight years or so ago, uh, I had this obsession with like the perfect parent. Um, especially the perfect dad. My mom was always working, so it really was like he pretty much raised us and he was always with us. And he was just a great man. Like he showed up, he did the school projects late at night. He would uh, pick us up from school on his bike with my bike on his back and my sister on a carrier. And we biked through these neighborhoods, these you know first wealthy white neighborhoods and then um, the black neighborhoods that are segregated from them in Baltimore. And he did all that. And I'm like the age now that he was when he had me. And like the idea of doing that kind of stuff, even five, 10 years from now, like blows my mind. And it wasn't until I did like that inner work on myself, therapy and getting sober and stuff that, you know, I kind of like reconciled with the fact that like, yes, not perfect, but also like some of the things I saw in that movie, like were reminding me, like we watched this movie because it like helped us process like who he was. And I talked to my sister about that recently. And she was like, yeah, we constantly watch that movie because it just reminded us so much of him. We see two things that I feel like come up a lot in the conversations that Sarah and I have been having, which is one, there's a circumstance in this movie in which the character Steven actually gets to tell his son in a clear headed way, like what is going on with him. And I think a lot of the people who listen to the show or, or in, uh, people in, in Sarah's situation, like don't ever necessarily or don't get a situation in which dad is able to articulate what the fuck is going on in his life. Have you been able to have that luxury of talking through some of that stuff with your dad? Does he get it? Yeah, and it, I'm not going to pretend it happened quickly or overnight. Um, it wasn't a beautiful scene by a tree. No, there, there, there wasn't. There wasn't an orchestral score playing in the background. Um, with Aaron Copeland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lots of no Americana, just lots of crying and yelling um but no like I, I distinctly remember a few times like and usually it's centered around like me being like 18 19 or in my early 20s like moving back home like after you and I worked together Alex for instance I would just like crash and burn like just get into some sort of shit with drinking or drugs he would pull me aside and I always thought for years I thought that you know there was no booze in my house whatsoever um at all uh, I think I saw my parents drink once when I was growing up. It wasn't until like my early 30s, like a few years ago, where I first started seeing them kind of drink casually. And I always thought it was because he was just so out of control that uh, he stopped when I was born because he, he was doing a lot of crazy stuff. He had all these exotic pets and stuff uh, before I was born that he got rid of when I came onto the scene. But yeah, as far as those conversations, there were a bunch where it was just like, Kasai, you can't drink like normal people. Uh, we have a family history of mental illness, of alcoholism, of drug addiction. Um, and he kind of talked me through one night, like, drink himself to sleep in graveyards, um, living in Virginia with his first family. And I just, like, back then, absolutely not trying to hear that. All I was hearing was, you know, the Charlie Brown teacher. Um, and somebody telling me to stop drinking, which was, like, not what I wanted to hear at all at that age. Because um, I needed it back then. Now I don't need it as much. It wasn't until uh, maybe four, five, six or seven years ago, my mom happened to work with a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. 
Um, and he kind of was talking through the stuff my dad has been through and dealing with the VA and just in life in general. And uh, he mentioned that a lot of black and brown vets have been ever since Vietnam, maybe before, uh, have been pretty much getting fucked over by the government, by the VA, being told that they were only eligible for like free or discounted tuition through the GI Bill. But there's all these protections. Uh, like I could have gone to, I went to a state school, I could have gone for free or for a very reduced rate. Um, there's like foreclosure protections, healthcare stuff. And my mom, like through talking to him, worked with this guy to get my dad what's called service connected with the VA, where he got all this back pay. Cause he wasn't working. Like when uh, in the movie, Kevin Costner like is, you know, shuffling from job to job, like he disappears for a while. We are told, like my dad worked as a janitor and I went to this private school with all these kids who had tons of money and I was so ashamed uh, and so scared of people finding out that he was a janitor. And now I know like he just did what he had to do. That's, you know, that's how he showed up. But in talking to this man and getting him service connected, he got an official PTSD diagnosis. And in talking to him kind of more recently, uh, I know that that has to do with as much with Vietnam as it does with his childhood and, and losing a child and things like that. But yeah, I, I know now how fortunate I am not only to have him, but also to have had those conversations because it's not like, especially as men, like we're just not coded, we're not raised, um, we're not socialized to open up and be vulnerable like that. Um, and especially, men, he's 70 now, like men in that generation especially. And I've had uh, a couple moments, like recently in the last year or two, I've, I've had more talks with him, more kind of intentional and deeper talks about what's been going on over the last few years because it's like he did group therapy with my mom and my sister. More stuff kind of came out and there's like this new level as a family that we're reaching. No, that's, that's, it's wonderful to hear it. But Sarah, what struck you about this? I mean, exactly what you said to begin with, which is like, wow, like here's another dad who is able to describe in an extremely self-aware way, like what his trauma is and how it has affected him and how I know that there are people like that. Like I've talked to them, like I've, I've experienced them, but like that is something that your dad is able to give you and sort of handing you his legacy. I don't know. It's just, to me, it's very interesting as a storytelling tool because most, as we've been saying, you know, in our, in our previous episodes, like most parents aren't going to be able to do this for their kids, which isn't to say that what they can offer isn't valuable. Like I think movies also do this thing where it's such a sort of condensed, heightened reality that, you know, nothing in, in lived life can really be compared to that. So the question is like, you don't necessarily need a dad who can perfectly explain his trauma in like one scene next to a tree, but like you need someone who can be willing to, you know, to attempt to be known and to sort of offer you that information over time maybe, or not be able to express all of that totally by himself. Well, two things. First of all, I had never heard of this movie before we watched it and then I was watching and I was like, why have I never heard of this movie? And then I looked up when it came out and it was four months after Forrest Gump came out. And I was like, I feel like this movie got screwed by coming out right after Forrest Gump. <laughs> and it's much better. <laughs> <laughs> right around the life is like a bowl of something. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, apparently, because that's a reference in this movie right, as well. <laughs> a bowl or, or a box of something. But like, 
But yeah, and just and how this is also a movie like set in the deep south about characters trying to make sense of the legacy of Vietnam among other things with this wonderful like jukebox soundtrack which I was also thinking like music was harder to access in the early 90s you had to buy stuff like it's nice to have a movie that just over and over you're like I remember I remember that song like (laughs) you know and like stuff that you really enjoy and is apropos like they play spirit in the sky during a time when perhaps there's a spirit involved stuff like that but yeah how how much the timing of this movie's release affected its reception I'm curious about that and also just that as I was watching it you know not knowing where it was going I was like I'm worried about this dad (laughs) like this is a really good dad (laughs) I don't I don't know if I think he's gonna make it (laughs) sounds like from a lot of the people that we're hearing from like they don't have any media representation that explains exactly how they are like I remember my parents or my dad in particular hated that I loved Roseanne. (laughs) Roseanne was the only show that showed a household that was like my household, you know? And I think like part of his hating it was he saw us in the show and saw that it was kind of part of the joke, even though it was never the butt of the joke within that show. But I feel so luxury that I had like Roseanne because it made me understand a lot of stuff I could not understand from say full house. You know, it didn't make any sense. Like, like, you know, they're in San Francisco and there's not a gay person to be seen. <laughs> I mean, Full House made sense to no one. <laughs> it's just so, it's such a specific and kind of beautiful like, thing to think about that like you had a specific piece of media that you you watched as a family and whether or not anyone was standing in front of the TV and saying, you know, this is us, it was giving you something to see. Do, do, you, do you remember it resonating in that way? Yeah, and I had to ask my sister when we watched this, because I, I legit couldn't remember. And I'm five years older than her, so she said when she was seven and I was 12. And that had to have been <clears throat> a couple of years after we moved into this house that they live in now, neighborhood full of kids. When we first moved in, it was a fixer-upper. There was a whole, like, it's like a, a yard, woods, and then a drop down to the stream. And then across from the stream is, uh, across the stream is, this HBCU called Morgan State, and the neighborhood was actually started as a reaction to um, like the first racist housing ordinance in America in this neighborhood called Roland Park here in 1910. So a lot of black professors like didn't they couldn't move to the neighborhoods where my schools were, basically um, back then. So they started this neighborhood. Um, so it was an all black neighborhood. Like like I said, tons of kids running around. And when we watched this movie. I feel like it was DVD era, so I think my sister might not even be right about us being 12 and 7. We might have been a little older. Uh, and when you talk about the representation thing, like, I was watching it, you know, now, you know, all these years later and thinking about, like, what black films, like, films starring black actors there were back then that we watched like that. And there were some, but obviously 94, like, our stories just weren't being told in that way. like. We weren't granted that nuance. We weren't granted that humanity, I don't think. And there's still some work to be done in that department. But yeah. Yeah. And you, so we have two we have two black little girls in this in this movie. And one's name is Latoya. And I don't know what the other girl's name is. Elva Dean. Elva Dean. 
And is is Latoya the, the girl who tells her story in the classroom? No, that's Elva Dean. Elva Dean has the big scene. Mm. That's how you remember. <laughs> and and the wonderful mood ring that she they trade back and forth. Yes, there's a racist teacher uh, played by Christine Brzezinski, way off type. It's amazing. Just boom, out of nowhere, Christine Baranski. <laughs> here she is. Which also feels like a To Kill a Mockingbird yeah, homage. Yeah, There's a lot in this that feels like that to me. Because I don't think this was... I don't even remember if this was in the movie, but in the book there's a school teacher who shows up who's just completely clueless about like the you know, the needs of the children that she's working with. Right. And El- Elodine tell like just is an amazing character throughout the movie, but she kills in the scene where uh the the kids are challenged to tell to tell their story right they're t- to to write to a tell memoir. why their life like is like a cherries. bowl of cherries <laughs> because then the frame story for this movie which caused me to think oh my god like at the end it's revealed that kevin costner's daughter has been telling this entire <laughs> movie as her life is like a bowl of cherries like theme that she wrote right. and you're like how long has she been standing there reading this and did this happen on the same day she schooled the te- no it didn't because that's part of her story yeah this is happening this is like the end of summer school and like she's just like andy kaufman reading the great gatsby i think but anyway once we are finished with this book we are going to be devoting our time to writing our memoirs this is where you will indicate to me why your life is like a bowl of cherries. By way of representation, Kasai, what stood out to you uh, in this movie? Uh, well, it's funny because you think about early, mid-90s, like especially like that teacher reference, like all the Dangerous Minds and The Substitute. Like those were movies where you saw Kind of like I can't like there aren't too many instances in film or TV that I can think of where a dynamic that exists like I work in schools now and uh, doing like restorative justice and restorative practices work and uh, we talk all the time about like teachers particularly white female teachers being a source of trauma uh, for uh, black children especially in cities like Baltimore. Uh, so you don't see that. There was a lot of like white savior stuff, even though we might not have called it that um, back with like Dangerous Minds and stuff like that. Uh, as far as this movie, um, I, I don't know. It's like something in me, like having grown or thinking about like this story being told from this white point of view. You know, there's the class aspect to it, too, that you have to look at as well. But I'm glad that Elvedine got that scene, right? Because, you know, they're, they have... When I, f- I remember first watching the movie, I was like, oh, man, not black sidekicks. Like, even as a kid, like, that was a thought that crossed my mind. Um, but they gave her that monologue, which was great. It's a bittersweet thing because it's like, you know, how many of our stories weren't told with this kind of... Like, when I think about the movies that came out around then, yes, there were dramas and things like that. But there was a lot of comedies, um, a lot of, like, hood movies, like the gang movies and stuff. Like, that was how you got your movie greenlit if it was, you know, mostly black actors or a black filmmaker. And it's like only now, like the last like five or six years, 10 years, uh, that we're seeing these stories about black families and just us being people instead of, uh, you know, these vessels for trauma or suffering. Sarah, what what else hit you about this movie and why did you cry? (laughs) Um, Okay, so let's talk about the scene where Kevin Costner is taking his son, Elijah Wood, 
to the auction because Kevin Costner has told Elijah Wood, hey, I have this plan. Don't tell your mother, but I'm going to put in a bid on this house that the bank owns because their house has been taken away from them. And was it foreclosed on? What what happened with their original house? Because this is a plot point, too, that the Lipnickies have, like, you know, stripped it. Yeah, I think it's just, like, assumed that it's it's understood that it's foreclosed. General 90s tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> right, it's a general 90s financial tragedy. They lost the house, and Kevin Costner, you know, he's come back from the war. He's riddled with PTSD. He's having a really hard time holding down a job, and it feels like one of the ways that He's trying to redeem himself as by doing, you know, the father and protector of the family thing and providing a safe and beautiful home for his family. And it feels like this movie is is his quest to redeem himself in a lot of ways. And so he takes his son to this auction to put in a bid on his house. And as they are pulling in the car stalls and who should be behind them but the Lipnickies in their truck... Um, who then start to ram him. And then a fight escalates between the two families. And like, it's this amazing scene where like it's escalating. Kevin Costner really like cools it down. Mr. Lipnicki gets out with a tire iron (laughs) and like, and Kevin Costner deescalates it. And then Elijah Wood, because he is an 11-year-old boy, I think, roughly. What does he yell out? He, he insults Mr. Lipnicki, finally. I can't, I can't remember. I think he calls him yeah. a son of a bitch or something. or like a, Yeah. Or like a, someone says a douchebag at some point. That's to, I'm not sure. There's but definitely it's a, a douchebag in the movie. Uh, it's yeah. a slam. <laughs> but yes, he, like, he insults the dad as he's walking away, and so Mr. Lipnicki comes back to wail on him. And so Kevin Costner basically, like, strangles him a little bit like he you know knocks the tire iron out of his hand pins him to the ground like it has his hand on his throat and says I believe like you know you can ram my car or you can call me names but if you come after my child you'll push a button in me and I'll lose control and I'll kill you and to me it's this I just want to talk about what (laughs) people think of that scene because to me it's this amazing moment of like he's going to be out of control like he's capable of becoming out of control but he's also aware of that like it's this very it's this combination of like of out of controlness and 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 self-awareness about it and his message is like I don't want to strangle you fully (laughs) so I'm going to strangle you like a little tiny bit I don't mind so much you plow into my car and I don't take offense if you're calling me names, but you go after my child, you're gonna push a button on me and then I'm gonna lose control and kill you. And I apologize to my son. This movie is such an interesting representation of a dad teaching his kids how to de-escalate, which is <laughs> fascinating. And because he has seen crazy shit in Vietnam. He had to leave his best friend not knowing the fate of his best friend in order to survive, presumably to die or to end up in a POW camp. Both options aren't great. And he says that this is sort of the the source and the root of his struggle. And he's trying to teach his son as a result and and also his daughter, but the, the conversations directly with his son about 
how fighting ultimately is not worth it. And he explains not just it's not worth it because it's not morally worth it. It's not worth it because it fucks you up. Like you are poisoned by the violence. In this exchange with the the Lipnicki father, he does everything he can to de-escalate, you know, to say you can ultimately do anything to me. I don't care. I'm not losing from it. I don't fight. But when you threaten my child, that's a problem. And it, it plays into this other theme where he says, he says earlier in a conversation with his wife while he's dealing with the fact that he can't hold down a job, that he wants you know, you you ultimately have to have hope because as long as you have hope, you can accomplish something. And that's essential and important to him because it gives a chance to his kids. And if his kids get a chance, then all of his shit that he's gone through was worth it. You know, that's kind of what he implies. And so so watching both like protecting his kids are extraordinarily important to him. And it's important to him because it gives his life some sort of meaning. It gives all of the shit that he's gone through some sort of meaning. And all of the people he's killed, you know, some there's his life has some sort of positive meaning despite that, which he also says, he's like, I killed more people than I saved. Yeah. And so for him, like he thinks that his kid's chance to survival is to learn how to not, fetishized violence and all we see all these kids we see the kids later on because i'd love for you to touch on, on sarah's question but also touch on the big actual war we have in this movie which is between between children but there's there's one point in the narration where the uh the little girl says she's looking around and realized that everyone had suddenly lost their minds because they're all emulating the adults in war and this is exactly what kevin costner doesn't want these kids to get lost in and they're playing Gimme Shelter. Yeah. 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 It's like a Scorsese movie. Yes. <laughs> this movie goes as hard as Platoon yeah. ever did. It, no, it really, it re- there are parts in this movie where I'm like, they were very faithful to having a, a Vietnam yeah. movie, but putting kids in the role. It's amazing. <laughs> Cause I, how'd you feel about that scene? The 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 Lipnis, the Lip Lipnisky Lipnicky Lipnicky the Lipnicky de-escalation. How'd you feel about that? It uh, it reminded me of some things that happened in real life, but also like rewatching this kind of helped me also understand. Like just talking about this as a movie uh, in '94, you know, even like a few years after that, there wasn't really. There weren't really too many nuanced takes, especially about that war, as far as just regular people coming home, whether they joined up. Because he says, like, I thought I went over there to help people. And, you know, as we all know, it was a completely ridiculous, unjust war, lots of needless death and suffering um, and changed people in this country forever. And to have like a character say that out loud and not have it like a war movie that makes a character heroic is obviously, you know, borderline farce. Uh, so for him to just like be outright and say like you know it, it did this to me this is what happened um, and I don't want to see I don't want to see that for you like I think that's when I think about like my dad's relationship with this movie is just like a random '90s Kevin Costner movie um, I think there was something a value in that for him um, especially before he was able to you know go to group therapy with other vets and talk this through talk these things through. Um, and yeah, there were situations like uh, in the neighborhood before where they live now, um, a kid was bullying me. I was probably like eight, nine. My mom worked with his mom and they lived in the same apartment complex. And my dad went over with my iguana on his shoulder and talked to the kid and was like, you're a kid. I'm obviously not going to beat you up or anything. 
But the mother, I don't know what was going on with her. Substance abuse, mental health stuff, I don't know. But it just wasn't, even as a kid, like, I could pick up, it wasn't registering. And I remember he pulled me aside and said, like, some people go through things that we can't see. Uh, there might be things going on in his house that, you know, according to his mother, my mother, uh, as far as his family situation that are affecting you, if it happens again, let me know. But, you know, it's kind of like how Kevin Costner said, you know, I can't expect you to control yourself if I can't control myself. So, yes, I did get the dad, like, teaching me how to box kind of lessons and stuff like that in the talks, but um, was never encouraged to, you know, just go out and start shit for no reason. Um, and I think, like, the lesson of that war was not starting shit for no reason, even though it's obviously not been learned as a, as a country, as a government. But, uh, yeah, I think, like, back to, like, the, the specific family. And it's funny because, like, I'll visit them now and see there were three brothers and two sisters. And the middle brother and I were closer in age. We were cool. And like I said, there was like a switch flipped. And the older brother started kind of bullying me and teasing me and stuff. And then it got physical a couple times, kind of back and forth. And our parents got involved. But they, maybe five years ago, like their father went missing. And there was a search throughout the city and he was found uh, like by the side of a river uh, dead. And it was really tragic, and I know he had had some mental health stuff going on, and I don't know if it was related to that, but um, just, like, looking at them now as adults, and they have their kids of their own, and talking to them, like, when I go to that neighborhood, and just, like, thinking, like, wow, that was 20-plus years ago, 25 years ago almost. And again, like, I didn't, it never crossed my mind that they had anything going on in their home that would allow, that would make them come at me sideways or, or getting my shit about going to private school or you know, who my dad was or whatever else. Um, so yeah, that, that that part of the movie, I think also, even as children, we were like watching that to see that on a screen and be like, oh, this is like a common thing, I guess. Because I think there's, I don't know, such a, such a glorification of um, the violence that comes from trauma residing in men's bodies in America, you know? And, and this is that, just a very different, response to that and I, I just feel like throughout this movie Kevin Costner is so good like he's a little bit too good of a person it's almost too much but like not for me I don't care you know because he just he's so decent and and he's so haunted by by the experience of leaving his best friend behind when he's probably mortally wounded so he can get on a helicopter by himself to evacuate which is the kind of trauma that I think is, you know, it's absolutely horrible to imagine. And also in the scheme of like ways that people ethically lost their way as soldiers in Vietnam is like one of the least horrible things that anyone ever did in that war. Because men came home from Vietnam and were like, I was on acid for days and days. And the soldiers I was with, we all opened fire on women and children and 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 we killed them all, and I took part in it. Why did I do that? But, like, you can't ask those questions out loud, really. The embargo on talking about war when it's over is, is something that I wonder about a lot as one of the reasons behind the sort of generalized ideas that we develop about psychology and humanity. Because, like, I was just talking to someone before we got on to record this episode about something that I find very interesting, which is that the first kind of book about 
psychopaths theorizing the psychopath, which is the mask of sanity comes out in 1946, which is like interesting timing. (laughs) It's like, wow, like why at that moment are we suddenly interested in like the worst capacities of human behavior, like the worst of what is potentially hiding within us all? No, it's not JK. It's like specific people that are born bad and like we can't be transformed by trauma into into doing something that we in a previous moment of our lives could have found totally inconceivable as something that we might do it's like once again like are we creating a diversion for the fact that like we've just you know that our country has systematically traumatized a a massive group of young men for no real reason and that are like deal with it it's not our problem right is this the first movie I mean, I'm going to ask, this is a rhetorical question, because I don't know if any of us has this trivia, but I'm curious. This has to be one of the first, at least family films, that talks about PTSD. Even them, him just saying post-traumatic stress out loud in a movie, it was kind of like a coup almost, because, yeah, like, the, I don't know what the first one was, but yeah, it's absolutely, uh, and I think, again, like, just thinking about, because I, I, if you had asked me that question uh, before I rewatched this movie, as far as, like, why this was so precious to us, I wouldn't have been able to answer that, I don't think. I think because we didn't have cable and we had our rotation of movies. But just seeing in it, like, knowing long before my dad was able to sit down with guys that, you know, did a lot of the things like Sarah was just talking about or had those experiences um, and just being so isolated in that and not being able to process it any other way than this random John Abnett movie from the 90s. I think there was there was uh, an importance to that. And, yeah, it's... I, it's it's really strange how it just kind of sits in this little corner as the the movie that that addresses it. Yeah, it's like a t- it's. I was texting with Sarah about this earlier, and it's it's like a twofer. It's like, hey, your dad might have PTSD, and here's how to do CPR. This movie <laughs> is very handy <laughs> across the board. The other thing that this shares with another movie is Friday, because Friday is all about de-escalation, too. Mm. Friday is about a father trying to teach his son to de-escalate when he's immediately trying to... Ice Cube and Elijah Wood have a lot in common uh, in, this, in this particular If only instance. Ice Cube had been cast in The Lord of the Rings, like that could have been... <laughs> A different world been, we're living in. Absolutely amazing. Um, when I took care of my father in his last his last year, uh, he was you know he was terminally ill, and it was only then that I ever heard. And we've we've talked we've talked about the the things that you get sort of towards the end of your parents' life if you're lucky, because like if not, you get none of it, and there's no resolution, which is which is the worst. When I took care of him, he was able to kind of say some of the stuff that he went through in the in the war in ways that he didn't tell me as a kid um and he was in the korean war and he didn't it turns out that he he was on a ship he had a purple heart i always knew he had a purple heart i never knew what the implication of what that meant and he was on a ship that got torpedoed he had to go out into the water and collect bodies into like essentially meshed canvas bags. And in one of the instances of collecting bodies, he picked up the remains of one of his friends. And it was really like a remains situation. And I, I didn't I never knew that as a kid. I just knew that he had a purple heart and that he sometimes watched you know, if you if you walked in at the right time and he was watching the History Channel, he was he would be crying a little bit, and I didn't know what any of these things meant. You know, 
the thing that resonated with me the most, and as Kasai just said, like, you don't necessarily always get that all at once. Sometimes you just have to sort of, if you get it at all, you have to put together all the pieces. And I think it could be very easy to watch this movie and say like, oh, convenient. He just like explained it all to his son in a touching moment. But I mean, you know, you don't have the luxury of the kid's entire life to necessarily walk through in the movie. And I really appreciated seeing what that resolution looks like where a parent in an optimal situation gets to say, you know, my moral perspective doesn't come, my ethical perspective doesn't come from a specific place. It comes from exactly how and why I was fucked up. And I think it like gives you something to look for in all of your interactions with your parents moving forward. Well, and also, you know, movies are wonderful when they have the like, that was the summer format. Like we just talked about Dirty Dancing and that's, you know, that's what that movie is. And this is, I think an amazing example of of a, that was the summer movie which are just movies are allowed to be spectacular in that way and just show us you know all the sort of growing understanding between father and son take place over the season that we get to watch and and I think just having examples of men who describe their emotions and showing how their families love them for that you know and the fact that Kevin Costner is someone who is you know, I'm really, I'm left with the image, two things, with him, like, trying to start his car as he's getting rammed by that guy, just looking like, just, like, he, he's maintaining calm under, like, the most unbelievable duress, like a, like an elephant who's having a sore tooth poked by a carny, you know, <laughs> and, like, and you're just aware of, like, this, this great nobility and strength, um, and then also when he takes little his little son Elijah Wood to look at the house that he's gonna put in the offer on and Elijah Wood's like oh it's falling apart and he's like well how dare you (laughs) (laughs) I don't know just this gentle wit basically this like this very deep love of his family you're just conscious of like how much sort of emotional anguish he's in and how much energy goes into sort of maintaining the the stability to do what he's able to do and I feel like just you know there being a movie that sets him up as an example of a good father is so meaningful and like subtlety is overrated I think honestly most people don't get subtlety like I don't get it most of the time especially 25 years ago just having a movie that's like you know (laughs) a father can be really strong by being very loving and peaceful and open about his trauma. Just think about it. <laughs> and saying quite literally, without love, there is nothing. Like he says that to his kid. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, Kevin Costner was like a feelings king. There was a point where, you know, my, my cold 2020 heart started to creep in. I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> um, but that scene where uh, he gives Lucas Black and the other Nikki girl, the girl, their cotton candy. And he's like, you know, those are the kids that just beat me up that you gave cotton candy to, right? Uh, and he says, it looks like they haven't been given anything in a while. And there were a couple instances in my life where my dad gave away my Atari when I was like seven. And I was so mad. And I don't know what the conversation between him and my mom was <laughs> as far as that happening, because I'm sure they worked hard to get that. Uh, but he gave it to these three brothers um, in our neighborhood. And, you know, I got they got replaced like right after that. So not a big deal. But just that, that notion of 
this is somebody who's caused you harm and you're still offering, you know, you're still here offering them a gesture of kindness and love. Like, yes, sappy, sure. But also, like, that's the kind of stuff that sustains us now, especially now. Yeah. Um, and I know in my life, like, I've had to, you know, turn the other cheek, whatever you want to call it. And I know that I've grown like, as a person not reacting in the way that maybe, like, Elijah Wood's character wanted to. I hope you know them the kids that just beat me up. I know who they are, son. Well, then why did you just give them Mom and Lydia's cotton candy? Because it looked like they hadn't been given nothing in a long time. Alex, when you said we were going to be watching this movie, my first thought was like, of course, like, of course, we're going to have a Kevin Costner movie in the first 10, the first five, actually, episodes that we release. And I just feel like Kevin Costner is a dad icon and like certainly one of the dad icons of the 90s. And I'm just curious about like, what is it about Kevin Costner? Well, he was the like said uh, when we first started, he was. Pa Kent in the terrible DC movies. Uh, and I went to see Man of Steel. One of their only redeeming one features. Of the, but there's a scene, they put it in the trailer because they knew it would tug at our heartstrings. <laughs> but young Clark Kent like, is like, something's wrong with me or they don't like me or something like that. And, or you don't love me or you think I'm different, something like that. And a tea, like, he just like, that single tear rolls down Kevin Costner's face and he's like, you're my son, of course. I love you. Um, he just grabs him, and they, they knew how to get me into the theater to see that terrible movie. I love movie. you, my alien boy. Uh, yeah, and they kill him off in, like, a real weird way. Uh, spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen Man of Steel. They're like, oh, we got the butts in the seats. Down with <laughs> Costner. The old bait and switch works every time. <laughs> but it was, like, perfect casting, because, yeah, like you said, he's definitely, like, dad icon. He was, like, sex symbol for a little bit, and then transitioned into dad icon. I feel like one of these things that we keep talking about that comes up, it definitely came up in our Dirty Dancing episode, is like realizing inadvertently in one way or another you're attracted to your father. Yeah, um, that's what that episode certainly ended up being about. Kevin Costner, to me as a child, was sold as someone who was a movie star and a sex symbol. And and I couldn't understand. I was like, I can't, I don't understand that at all because this man seems like a dad. I mean, I remember there was actually like a punchline in a Saved by the Bell episode in which like Lisa talks about like being attracted to Kevin Costner. And I was like, really? That seems very strange. Then it makes sense that she's so uninterested in Screech. Yeah, Kevin Costner is her type. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Screech never had a shot. (laughs) I don't think I I have appreciated Kevin Costner until relatively recently. Oh, well. I would say the one thing that I saw of his enthusiastically and I saw it in the theater was Waterworld. Uh, I've never actually seen it, and I feel like it can't be that bad, right? It's sort of this legendary boondoggle, but like, but he's on the water and he's wearing a cool outfit. I, I don't see how it could be that terrible. I think it was, I don't even know if it was judged for what it is. I think it was judged for this is the most expensive movie ever made at this point, and this is what you did. Like, I think that that was the question. So I never, I, I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't get Kevin Costner. Are, do you see him dad like, uh, Sarah? I do. Um, although I think as we got into when we talked about Dirty Dancing, like, I always had such a phenomenally old dad that like Kevin Costner playing like a dad in his 30s like I never registered that as a dad age it's like <laughs> that's just an adult 
male person. <laughs> um, so <laughs> That's a math teacher. <laughs> yeah. So like kind of more now that like I see my friends becoming dads and being sort of like progressively Costner age dad, I'm, I'm like, oh, I see it. Like that is dadliness incarnate, you know, and there's like there's certain men who like when they become dads you're like you are just always missing a baby like you are just finally complete now that you have a little baby to hold and like you know Kevin Costner I feel like kind of maybe embodies that quality like he just is like as an actor really like very well suited for playing characters who have children and are emotionally present with their children. What I think is coolest about this movie and the way that it's set up and spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it dad dies midway through so as we know his trauma comes from not being able to save his best friend he makes a new best friend he gets to save his best friend who is getting um who's pinned who gets pinned under a fucking rock (laughs) and he takes a rock to the head and eventually dies oh my god and what we get to see happen is really fascinating in in a way that you again this movie there's so many complex things for for a for a children's movie or or a family movie but you get to see not only him close the loop on not being able to save a best friend you get to see his kids live to his code and his code being you know de-escalation so kasai can you talk a little bit about what the war is and what happens between the kids at first the war is the boys versus the girls like uh Stu the brother Elijah Wood and the sister battling over who's gonna replace it or uh, put it up. And it escalates into, oh, all the scrap that we use to build this is from our enemy's junkyard. Uh, They find out, um, and then after the Kevin Costner plot element of him dying is finished, and there's just like this whole beef over the lip, Nikki's coming to take it over. And yeah, we mentioned Platoon earlier, and I was like, damn, this really does feel like <laughs> those like super dramatized, like stylized Vietnam movies from the 80s and like 90s. Bugsy Malone, but yeah. about Vietnam. <laughs> there's a lot of kids very close to fire in this movie. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's like falls, and like people are being threatened with chains. There's a tractor and... that explodes. Yeah, there's an explosion. <laughs> There's a potato gun, like, hit straight to the torso. Um, but, yeah, I just remember, like, being, like, we had rock fights as kids, like, things I would never do now yeah. unless it was, like, I don't know, like, street fighting or protest or something. Like, uh, normally you're not going to be in a situation where you're, like, doing these things, but as kids, like, seem completely normal. But then uh, I, I, like, and I completely forgotten about how this ended. Like, completely forgotten about the, the little boy, Billy, going up to the, the youngest Libnicki brother, finds Kevin Costner's dog tags that were in the locker, uh, and he climbs to the, the dreaded water tower that's next to the quarry that they had been fighting over earlier in the movie, and there's a whole rescue. Like, you talked about him living up to the code, and I just think about, like, for me, all these years, you know, my dad, and I'm sure a lot of people get this, is, like, the message that was kind of rained down on me was, your family is more important than anything. Um, and after like decades of being ashamed of my family for not having enough money or where we lived or what my parents did, uh, and then like getting my stuff together and working on myself enough to realize like, wow, he was right. And now we have this relationship that, you know, I wouldn't trade for the world. It's not perfect. Um, we have our bumps, but we've all kind of done the work on ourselves to get to the point where we're able to like live up to that. You know, I say all that knowing that that's not, like, typical. Especially as men, we're not, like, (laughs) 
we're not wired to be vulnerable or to admit that, you know, something's going on with us or uh, that something's affecting us. So for us to have the conversations we have, I know that's a blessing. And I know I'm very privileged in having that. There's this war over the treehouse, which again is like exceptionally violent for a kid's movie. Beautifully so, actually. I feel like kids' movies today are missing straight up war scenes. Stu has been to this point someone who's trying to live up to his father's values until his father dies. He feels abandoned by God, which we all in one way or another feel literally all the time in our lives. I love a movie where a character literally cries and yells at God God. and (laughs) says of his dead dad, I needed him more. It's so good. He finally comes to his senses when he sees this kids getting the shit kicked out of them in coming to his senses realizes that the the littlest Lipnicki is going up to essentially get himself in trouble almost drown by climbing on top of a rusty ceilinged water tower which has like a vortex like Scylla and Charybdis inside of it basically <laughs> yeah a water tower made of Chekhov's gun, basically. It's just the whole every time we see it, we know the thing's gonna murder someone. And he and so 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 he goes and by him going, he triggers everyone else going. They save this little boy. The little boy has the dad's dog tags on it. So if you did not realize in the battle that the that the dad's influence uh um helped Stu come to his senses, you see that he literally helped save this little boy. And then there's also some God stuff because the little boy says that he saw an angel that was probably like the dad but whatever that's fine yeah <laughs> a beam of light comes down like after he comes, a yeah. beam of light comes down it's good it's so good it's tasty it's implied that if only the united states and north vietnam had had like billy to save together <laughs> then we could have ended this cruel war there's this theme of angels in the movie which i feel like you know you can take in any way that you want really and one of them is to think that like when we do something better than we would have otherwise because of the way that someone who isn't with us anymore has influenced us then like that's a way that they live through us I don't know I feel like this movie like we've talked about it sort of its overtness and its sentimentality and I feel like you're it's I think it's kind of a Disney movie for adults in a way where it's like here are the feelings that this movie is about and its themes and like we're going to make this all unbelievably clear to you kevin costner is an angel like this is his trauma and like and here's what i learned this summer and also i totally thought that this narration that's happening throughout the whole movie that is kevin costner's daughter's character i thought that this was like as in Dirty Dancing, her looking back from when she's like 40. But like, no, she just wrote all this at the end of that summer. <laughs> like she got perspective really fast. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like it's like this is a story that's like very relevant, um, you know, to most people who have some kind of a dad or some kind of an experience of de-escalation, you know, being something that they learn or would like to learn in their lives and it's just it's to me it's taking those themes and just making them very 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 accessible this part of the movie is about legacy you can either take legacy as metaphor which it's presented as or you can take it it's presented for anyone of uh, any entry point like you can take it as metaphor you can take it as angels but this movie is about impact and influence of the the people who leave us behind i love there's there's a scene earlier that sets us up for this by the way i wish i wish billy said that the angel looked like ray Liotta, but that was a mystery <laughs> there's a scene earlier that sets us up for this in which 
Kevin Costner's talking to his little girl and he's telling her about about guardian angels and how she must have a lot of angels. It's implied that one of the angels is his his father, her grandfather, and she and she, in the most wonderful way possible, sort of checks him on that and reminds him that his father his his father was a like a non-functioning alcoholic, so that's kind of a shitty angel to have. <laughs> And you know, he says, "Once I make, once I make it uh, to the afterlife, I'll check in with God to make sure that I can look after you properly." And then we should talk about how, at the very end, you know, Kevin Costner has died, the war has ended, Stu has saved Billy. Also, Billy's brother like doesn't get in the water. He's just like, "I'm just gonna." <laughs> I was just about to say, yeah. It's Elijah Wood who jumps right. in and grabs He's him. like, I'm going to stay high and dry and keep shouting Billy. I'll grab the stick. <laughs> Sometimes you can give people all the cotton candy you want. They're only going to go so far. You know, it's, it's only, don't expect too much. <laughs> <laughs> but then, so at the very end, all this has happened. And we see Kevin Costner's widow with her Coke cans, her Coke bottles, excuse me, that she's collecting to save up for deposit money i think we've learned that this is how she's you know she saves up coke bottles she's got like 40 dollars worth of coke bottles at one point and i think now she's maybe starting over someone from the bank i guess comes and says that the house that her husband put down an offer for is theirs and so he's given them a home from the afterlife and that's the very ending of all of this we were led to believe earlier that it wasn't going to work out because his bid wasn't very high. It was suggested that the minimum bid should be $5,000, and we eventually learned he should only he only put down, I think, around $430. $432, in fact. He put in everything he had. And I love that this movie was almost clearly written by a socialist because... <laughs> It was by no one's grace that it happened. It was because the bank was up against the wall and had to settle for the lowest offer. Like, they're not pretending like banks are cool. They're just like, it just fucking worked out because we're all in a bad way. Because the bank is corrupt and made bad choices. So So you benefit from a bad choice. No big deal. Just every so often. One one out of every hundred. Have fun. We'll see you you in 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, well, so normally we ask a kitschy end of episode question, which is we know who the dad was, but who is the daddy? But there aren't a lot of options. It's just Kevin Costner, right? Like <laughs> It's Kevin Costner and Mr. Lipnicki. Mr. Lipnicki, yeah. <laughs> cruel daddy. <laughs> cruel, cruel, dirty yeah. daddy. <laughs> and then, yeah, actually, that's just an interesting thing, though, because, like, are there even other men in this movie? There's, like, little side characters, but, like... There's the guy who works at the auction. There's the guy who shows up from the bank. That's it. And the guy who saves. That's it. Right. The flashback guy. But, yeah, there's really not other men in this movie? Fascinating. Oh, and then there's there's his dad's work partner, his buddy, who who he saves, whose life he saves. So there's... There's people from the bank and people whose life you attempt to save if you're Kevin Costner. These are the other men in your life. He's a family man. That guy's a man. He does not. We know he's a man because he does not like it when people make fun of his car. Like, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, my God. 
Yeah, I love I I love this movie because I am so glad you suggested it. It's it's uh, it, it strikes me that it's a movie that I definitely saw through like flipping through on television because I distinctly remember Elijah Wood in the yeah, movie. Yeah, it was on TV a lot. But I I hadn't had a chance to really absorb what this movie is. I love that he got top billing over Kevin Costner. <laughs> <laughs> Elijah Wood was huge at this time. The Good Son yeah, had just come real out. Big. He really acts too. Like there aren't that many like little boy roles where you can give like a tour de force performance like carrying a whole film but like he really does he and kevin costner are co-leads like pesci and de niro (laughs) (laughs) all right everybody that is it for this episode of wire dads our producer is carolyn kendrick of course we want to thank kasai richardson for joining us on this episode thank you so much for joining us for this ride kasai it was our great pleasure We want to thank Funky Fresh Lesh for some of the music that was used in today's show. And Carolyn, again, for coordinating the music and writing and performing our opening song. Join us next week for Top Gun with writer Rabble Razer and delightful shit-stirrer Clementine Ford. Both me, Alex Steed, and Sarah Marshall are Wire Dad's creators and executive producers. We will talk to you all soon. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for listening.